0: Glad y'all are here this morning. Everybody survived uh, firecrackers and parades and all that. The Greenville Parade is greatness. I hope you had a chance to see it. If you didn't, you need to make that a priority next year. It is, it is a real treat. Um, glad that you're here this morning. If you're here with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Just let you know that we are glad that you're here. Uh, we're thankful that you've uh, chosen to worship with us this morning. There are some wonderful churches in our community. We don't profess to be the best I don't really know that there is such thing because they're all different. And that's uh, we celebrate our other churches in our community. We cheer for them. Um, And if this is one one visit for you that may be your first and last, for example, know that we're cheering for you to land somewhere. Uh, It really matters that you're part of a church, that you're known by someone that's walking with the people of God and that you are knowing the people of God. So that's our strong encouragement this morning. We're not trying to sell you on the features and benefits of us being better than everybody else. We're different, and if the Lord uh, presses upon your heart that this is a place that you want to continue um, the faith journey with us, then uh, we can talk more about how that, how you do that. So, if you'd like to like more information about that, who we are and what we believe, you can visit that little table. I think that's been pointed out already. Something that would will help us too is if you end up um, if you think about it, uh, grab this little card, send the seat back in front of you, and fill that out. And you can either drop it in the offering, that's your offering, uh, we don't want your money, it'd be a treat for us just to be able to get to know you. Um, And then, um, or you can bring it to the the table on the way out and drop it with Clay or whoever's manning that that booth there. So that's an encouragement to to, um, fill that out if you would and let us get to know you if if that's okay. Uh, we, are, we have a summer reading program going this year. I want to just encourage this book. Uh, it's called Empowered, How God Shaped 11 Women's Lives and Can Shape Yours Too by Katherine Parks. This book is available right outside the uh, double doors there for $10. If you don't have $10, you can't afford it, or you don't, uh, want to pay for it, but you want to read the book, that's fine. Just grab the book. That's, you know, if, if you can pay for it, that's awesome. If not, don't fret over it. Uh, this is our July reading, Empowered. There's another book that, that she's put out that we're going to be reading in August. and um, I encourage you to grab this book. You don't have to be a female to read this book either. In fact, it would probably be honoring to your wife and honoring to the kingdom, I think, to read about how God has used 11 women in the life of the church. So um, just encourage you, whatever your gender whatever your age, to grab this book maybe on your way out and spend some time in it and be blessed as you do. We're going to pray um, about a few things before we climb into our message this morning. Uh, we're going to pray for Libyan Arab youth. Uh, we're praying specifically for uh, a softening of hearts. There is a, um, we've, I'm following the IMB mission uh, prayer guide each week, IMB mission, mission board or international mission board. That's kind of redundant. IMB mission board, the international mission board, a prayer guide each week. And they right now are encouraging prayer for Libyan Arab youth. So we want to join our other churches that are praying for the, for a softening of hearts, uh, that the Lord would be working in people and working in dreams, even working in people's lives that what's going on in this youth culture in Libya right now is a sort of a rebellion against the system and rebellion against their faith, Muslim faith. So that's, that's, Potentially a really, op- really opportune moment to bring the good seed of the kingdom, good, good news of the kingdom, into that context. So, we want to pray for youth. We want to pray for um, this morning. We want to pray for uh, people that are serving in the military. Uh, there's kind of a little recognition of people that have served in military. There's a you know a little note of gratitude or or you know appreciation. So, you know, if you know somebody that is a family member or somebody among us, maybe maybe encourage that to just say thanks. But I think the greater Uh, focus this month is praying for folks who are serving or who are connected to those who are serving. We have one of our members uh, that's connected to an active duty um, uh, young man that's serving right now, uh, Jake Adele. So we want to be praying for Jake as he's going through armor training school right now, and he's going to be eventually leading troops in um, tanks um, in the army. So we want to pray for Jake and pray for his training and pray that God would use him in that context. We want to pray that God would uh, would take this life or death, harm's way context to bring good seed and good soil or to good soil in that context. That Jake, as he leads troops, that he would also have an opportunity to, to be salty and bright and aromatic. So we want to pray for Jake. We're going to pray for another ch- uh, church in our community, uh, Christ Community Church, and for the pastor there, Rick Prettyman. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, also uh, just something and someone that is just front and center on our hearts this morning that we want to bring up is a little Trevor. Uh, we um, continue to pray for his treatment, Lord. We continue to pray for his family. We continue to pray for his endurance. Uh, Lord, we ask you to please, please open the door to some treatment and some healing that, uh, that will help him and we are entrusting him to you and entrusting his family to you. Please sustain them Uh, please uh, be present, just a sense of presence. I'm praying for Trevor as he's occupying a bed right now, that he won't be afraid, that he will trust you as a good father, uh, that he will see parents and friends and family and church family surrounding him, uh, cheering for him and begging for um, health and wholeness. Uh, We are entrusting little Trevor to you. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for Uh, A people group, a particular people group right now that's on our mind this morning are the Libyan um, youth. Lord, we pray, and it's a big prayer for people we don't even know by name, but we pray for a softening of hearts, and we pray for uh, dreams and visions, and we pray for people with their burden to go to a really, really crazy hard place like Libya to bring good seed, or that you would take, uh, that you would connect the dots. Uh, to where these young people that are pushing back against the system and the culture and even their faith uh, uh, history, Lord, that that you would bring uh, good news to them and that it would find purchase, and, Lord, that you would begin to work there through that. Lord, also we want to pray for our folks that are serving in the military, and uh, we are, are thankful for the call to serve in that way, and we're thankful for, uh, particularly this morning, praying for Jake Adele, we are entrusting him to you in this training that he's going through. We ask you to use him, Lord, to be salty and bright as he leads troops uh, uh, in, in, this, in the service of our country. Lord, we are uh, thankful for those who are connected to us in this room, that uh, family members who are serving, um, who have served. We just pray that you would bless, especially those families that are, are still have folks that are serving and the demands that are placed on them. Lord, we pray that you would sustain them. We pray that we pray for those men that are serving as chaplains. Uh, that they would have a potent, um, life-giving, encouraging, helpful word for those who are being stretched to well beyond capacity as they serve in our armed forces. Uh, Lord, we too want to pray for our local church. we praying for Christ Community Church. We cheer for Christ Community Church, Lord. We cheer first and foremost uh, for your fame and your renown and your glory in and through the ministry of Christ Community Church. I'm praying for Rick and Julie, Lord, that you would bless their marriage. I pray that they would enjoy you as a as a couple. I pray that you would um, just stir Rick weekly as he's uh, preparing to preach and 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 pastor and shepherd and all the different roles that he fills. Lord, that you would sustain him with good, solid, old fashioned worship. That he would enjoy Christ crucified and risen. Lord, I pray the word would speak to him, that the Spirit through the word would speak to him each week, so that the, the people of Christ Community Church would have a potent. Life changing, transformative word every single week. We're entrusting them to you, Lord, and asking you to bless the ministry there. Lord, uh, lastly, just want to pray for how we're going to spend these next few minutes. Um, We're thankful that we get to join uh, a crowd of people on a hillside this morning and in the coming weeks to hear a good word from our Lord. Pray that you will condition our hearts, Lord, that you will condition our ears, uh, that you would just give us a clarity attentiveness that would only come from you and trusting this time to you in christ's name we pray amen we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness most of you many of you hopefully most all of you in some way are familiar with that from the Declaration of Independence through school or through some context. Hopefully you've come, become acquainted with that. Uh, it's, it's familiar to us, especially this week as we've celebrated our declaration or the declaration and in our independence. Um, I, I think it's interesting, though, this morning. I really want to consider just for a moment that our American fa- forefathers were apparently thinking about the idea of happiness, In this little excerpt from the Declaration, he's holding, this is written by Thomas Jefferson, probably edited by some other guys. But he's pointing out these rights that go along with being a human being that they call in the Declaration unalienable. It also could be said inalienable. It's the same meaning for a word that's just spelled a little different. Rights that go along with being a human being. And we can be thankful in the country that our forefathers, the country that we live in, our forefathers counted that important. That life and liberty, both capitalized, were also as important as happiness, which is also capitalized in the Declaration of Independence. I don't hear the notion of happiness discussed very much in in the news. I don't hear it from politicians. I don't hear this notion that I just want you to be happy. I want you to live in a place where you, you can be happy. But apparently our forefathers were considering it, so much so that it found its way in this important document a couple hundred years ago in the Declaration of Independence. It's striking to me that in capitalizing it and the way he's placed it, Thomas Jefferson seems to place happiness alongside the importance of life and liberty. Life itself and freedom and liberty. Happiness sits right there with a capital H. Thomas Jefferson, if you know anything about him, you know that he was not a Christian. Uh, He was an Epicurean. We're going to come back to that later on in the morning. He studied uh, an ancient uh, Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And um, his notion of happiness is, interestingly enough, going to be woven into this sermon later on this morning as we look back at some Greek philosophers. This notion of happiness apparently mattered to him. And whether or not it's in our public conversation from our politicians, from the news, or from the media, or from whatever we're engaging, it was apparently part of our forefathers' conversation. And you're going to find out, too, it was apparently part of our Christian forefathers' conversation. So it matters to us, I think. So we're going to be studying in these next few weeks. We're going to be studying something that, uh, although we may not hear a lot about it, I think we all bring to the room this morning a desire for well-being. A sense of well-being. I think we all bring to the room this morning a desire for purpose and wholeness and happiness. And I think it's interesting, and I don't think it's coincidental at all, that on the week that we celebrate living in a country where we can pursue that freely, that we're also beginning a series from a sermon on happiness and wholeness. So I'd ask you if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, to the Sermon on the Mount. I'll give you a moment to turn. I want to hear some pages turn. We're going to be spending the morning in Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to be looking deep at any particular text, but I want you to see the sweep of the sermon over the course of three chapters in Matthew chapter 5. Okay, here's my pep talk as you turn. I had a, a Marine that I served with, um, and I don't even recall the Marine's name. This, this moment happened that I'll never forget, uh, sitting underneath a, a GP tent. Uh, in Mogadishu, sitting on the beach in Mogadishu, Somalia. Having been on patrol, we're sitting under these tents, just sweltering heat, just kind of recovering, recovering from being on patrol. It's the one place you can take off your flag jacket and helmet. And you're sitting there just kind of recovering. And I'm sitting in the tent with the first sergeant and um, the gunnery sergeant, and I hear some of our Marines in the neighboring tent. They're talking about uh, going to college. And I heard one Marine turn to the other. You know, they're talking about whether they go to college or not, whether they want to go to college or not. And this one Marine turned to the other Marine. And he says, well, I ain't real bright, but I can carry a lot of heavy things. And this guy, I guess that was his response to the conversation about college, implying that I'll never see or never, never darken the doors of a college classroom. But one of the things that I enjoyed about that comment is that he immortalized himself, okay, in my mind. I've, I've stated that thing a, a, a thousand times since then. And it's kind of funny for a few Marines talking about whether or not they're going to go to to college. But that kind of mindset is tragic when you bring that to the faith conversation. When somebody brings that sort of notion that uh, I may not be real bright, but I can carry a lot of heavy things. And they're unwilling to do the work of understanding and making sense of this Bible that we all carry. That we all have in our hands, that we have on our coffee table at home, hopefully have in our laps right now. So my strong encouragement to you right now is to this, we have to do the work of understanding this Bible. And it's not impossible work. It's not rocket surgery. It's not that hard. Okay. We can read it and there's some tools that we can use to climb into it. And we can make sense of this thing where it will absolutely come alive. And I think when we do that, there's some promises. I was thinking about this passage in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. He says, uh, he's speaking of the parable of the sower. You don't need to turn there. This is just still part of my pep talk. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. You may be familiar with that parable, but you can see the role of understanding in bearing fruit. If we don't give any time and any intentionality to understanding this seed that's being sown into us and trying to make sense of it, then we're really unlikely to bear any fruit. So understanding somehow, I don't know how it works, but somehow the ears and the mind are the doorway to the heart and the soul. So this morning is going to be an investment in the ears and the mind, knowing that over the course of the next weeks and months, the Lord, I believe, is going to make quite an impression upon the heart and soul in this study of the Sermon on the Mount. So this Sunday and next Sunday are going to be probably more teaching-oriented, this one especially so, uh, teaching-oriented, dealing with the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And next Sunday we're going to be dealing with largely the theology of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sunday after that we're going to climb right into the the good medicine of the Beatitudes, maybe just one at a time, just taking our time, low-crawling. So let's start with some simple things that may, may feel a little bit uh, academic but are very important. Let's deal with structure first. If you have the, the Sermon on the Mount in front of you, I'm just going to give you kind of a bird's-eye view of the structure. Let me tell you, too, that if you have an ESV study Bible, I want to encourage you to use it. The Sermon on the Mount is almost like a book within a book. Okay, And it stands alone, and a lot of people study because it's, it's so profound. It's a profoundly important sermon. And there actually is a little introduction within the English uh, Standard Version Study Bible at the bottom of the page. And something like that, I'm telling you, if you're reading on your own, your daily devotional, and you have a little explanation at the bottom of the page, read that thing. The English Standard Version Study Bible is phenomenal. It is a phenomenal study tool. If you don't have it, I strongly encourage it. Okay, so let's get into the structure. The sermon is three chapters long. It goes chapters 5 through 7. Okay, the chapter... um, Numbers or things that we've introduced or that you know have been introduced long since the sermon was preached. There were were no chapter departures on the, on the when the sermon was preached that day two thousand years ago, but we're going to kind of climb in and I'll use these sort of references to help you see kind of the bird's eye view of what's going on here. First of all, that its introduction section goes verses one through sixteen of chapter five, dealing with the beatitudes and the salt and light section. Okay, that's introductory content. For the sermon, and really, in some ways, you could consider it a happy people—the product of this sermon—and people that are walking out this sermon will be a happy people, so profoundly different that will be salty in a world that's decaying and bright in a world that's dark. That's the introductory section, verses one through sixteen. The body of the sermon goes chapters five, verse seventeen, through chapter seven, verse twelve. Chapter five. Verse 17 through chapter 7, verse 12. And let me just encourage you, if you're the guy that's kind of feeling like, hey, I I, I can carry a lot of heavy things, maybe carry something light right now, like a little pen or a pencil and a little notebook and write this stuff down. Okay, I, I, I promise you it'll serve you in a way as you're studying and as we journey together through the Sermon on the Mount, it'll bless you to see how this thing is broken out. The body of the sermon goes from chapter five, verse seventeen, through chapter seven, verse twelve. And first of all, deals in verse seventeen through twenty with superior righteousness. Unless your righteousness is better than or higher than the, are exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom. Okay, that would have been a shocking, shocking pronouncement. Beginning in verse twenty-eight, or excuse me, verse twenty-one through forty-eight are six antitheses. Six antitheses. And I'll tell you what they are. Basically, it's, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And there's six of them. And you can see how they break out on the page. The first one has to deal with anger. You've heard it said this about anger or about murder. I say this about anger. That's the first. The second has to do with lust. You've heard it said this, but I say this. Divorce is the third. You've heard it said this, I say this. The fourth is oaths. The fifth is retaliation. And the sixth has to do with loving your enemies. Each of these antitheses are contrasting Jesus' interpretation and application of the law versus the contemporary Jewish teachers. You've heard it said this, but I say this. Okay. Then in, beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, he deals with hypocrisy in the pillars of Judaism. And those being almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. Not in that order. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And then in chapter 6, verse 19 through 34, he deals with two kinds of priorities. Heavenly priorities and earthly priorities. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, he deals with relationships, judging others. And then it ends with a section that is probably pretty familiar, the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That section deals with how we deal with one another. And then the conclusion begins in chapter 7, verse 13, and goes all the way through the end of the chapter. And he deals with two roads and two gates, a narrow one and a wide one, two trees and two kinds of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit, two confessions, one saving, and then one, I never knew you. And then lastly, two hearers and builders, one that builds on sand and one that builds on rock. And then the sermon ends with the response from the crowds in verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You could technically say it ends with the next verse. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Okay, so the context begins. He's climbed a mountain, and it ends with him climbing back down. You can see that in the outline here as well. Okay, so the audience the passage, the sermon begins over here in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. At least initially, we're talking about the disciples being the audience, but we can assume over the course of the sermon as its priests that the crowds then followed him. He couldn't keep the crowds away. And by the end, it's the crowds that are noting how awesome his teaching and preaching was. I would add to the audience, not just the disciples and not the crowds 2,000 years ago, but I would add to the audience a treasured and dear host of witnesses that join them. The saints over 2,000 years that have considered this passage one of the most beloved passages in our Bible. It's a sweet season that we're in as we get to sit down with a host of witnesses who have aimed to live by this sermon. Who've preached it, who've taught it, who've thought on it, who've wrangled with it. Chrysostom is a man we're going to meet this morning. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, even Thomas Aquinas, we'll get a mention. Chances are you have a family member in your past who labored over and anguished over these teachings right here. Maybe it's a grandfather, great grandparent that held this. Sermon, dear. So I want us to consider as we're looking, not just looking the page, but even kind of pan out and realize contextually, even in time and space, that we have a host of witnesses joining this audience on that hillside, in between now and then, and then today, as we continue to sit at his feet with this living message as Christ preaches preaches on the hillside. Okay, so the next uh, part of the morning, I'm going to spend dealing with historical interpretation. And then lastly, I'm going to deal with context. Historical interpretation, I think, is important because we need to determine now whose shoulders we're going to stand on. You're going to understand why I'm dealing with this here in a moment, okay? Historical interpretation, we need to determine whose shoulders we're going to stand on. And I'm going to work uh, from present tense or present time backwards. I'm going to start with modern interpretation and modern treatment of this sermon. And really there are two that I'm going to deal with. There's one that would, I would say would be a faithful treatment, but then there are a couple that I'm going to point out. First is the existential reading of the sermon. The existential reading of this sermon focuses on one's inner intentions. It says it's not so much about what you're actually doing or not doing and more just about your intentions, your attitudes, your internal dispositions. It's not about what we do it's about what we should do and what we should be. Okay, that's the existential reading. Okay, I'm pointing it out not to, just, not to encourage it. I'm pointing it out so we can recognize the difference of what you're going to hear over these next few minutes. The handling of this sermon. Also, a modern treatment of the sermon would be, would be what I would call the eventual reading. Someone that reads the contents of this sermon and says, okay, this must be dealing with an eventual kingdom. Okay, we know that the kingdom has been preached as announced and readied and, and come. But these things are an impossible tasks. These things, some of the things we're called to here, can't possibly be lived out in this dark world, decaying world. So they must have to do with an eventual kingdom, like when Christ comes back, maybe. That's an eventual reading. And some of the, uh, the, word, some of the phrasing that I found that was coupled with the eventual readings were versions and evasions. I like the phrase evasions because that's really what you're doing if you're going to say it's just for a future kingdom. You're evading the contents of this sermon, and they're no longer authoritative for you. Those are a couple of the modern treatments. I think it makes sense why somebody would want to find some versions and evasions and why somebody would want to just consider this as an existential treatment because some of the things in this Sermon on the Mount will shock you and blow your mind. Here's a few excerpts, and I want you to just hear them. Hear them newly, if you can, even if you've heard them a thousand times. Just hear what I'm about to read to you. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I'm just going to read it again, just so we can understand what's actually being said there. He's putting on par murder, which I think everyone in this room would agree is ah, that's terrible. That's, that's horribly sinful. He's putting that on par with anger toward a brother. Read it again. You've heard it said you shall not murder. Everybody knows that's bad. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We all suspect that. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The reason I want to just take our time and just consider how profoundly challenging this is because let's be really honest we have a room full right now of murderers i mean that's what this sermon is saying is there anybody in here that's never been angry with a brother or a sister i suspect we have a room full of murderers right here and i suspect too even now this side of the cross and even this side of christ for those who are trusting christ as savior and lord you still have times where you're angry with your brother so as we step on this hillside, man, evasions, inversions sound kind of delicious, right? Is there some way out of anger with my brother being acquainted or being um, put on par with murder? Is there some way, some explanation where that's not possible? Here's another. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart, with her in his heart. Can we add to the list of murderers, adulterers? Can we at least acknowledge why we might imagine that someone want to, would want to evade that notion? It's easier to, to, to sleep at night, right? It's easier to live with if we can somehow evade the reality of that statement. Here's a third You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Man, you read that, that's easy to read, right? Is there anybody in this room that would really have an easy time dealing with that? Actually walking that out? Actually obeying that? I mean, I kind of want to read it and go, okay, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth unless I have a CHL. And then I have a legal right to take care of business. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, man, it's a good thing I carry because you're going to get a nine mil stuck in your face. Now, I don't think that way. I don't even have a CHL. I don't need one. I got these right here. <laughs> I'm talking about all those other people, you know. Man, I'm, I'm wired for self-defense. Wired for it. I love the notion of self-defense. So when I'm reading something like this, I'm looking for an evasion. Maybe he's just talking about the intentions, the internal dispositions, the internal attitudes. Because if he's really talking about turning the other cheek, if he's really talking about somebody taking my tunic and me giving them my cloak as well, oh, now, things are getting really uncomfortable here. Is there any way out of this? Here's another excerpt. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. anybody else having an easy time with that? I mean, that love your enemies, really pray for those who persecute you. Not pray for them like, Lord, I sure hope they wise up, being so dumb, ignorant. But I mean, praying for them, like praying for them. God, give them your best. Draw them to you so that they experience you in a wonderful way. Anybody have that? Does that come easy for anyone? Anybody else feel a little uncomfortable with that? Go, oh wow. How about this one? If nobody, if, if maybe you've gone through these last few unscathed, maybe this one will hit you. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? If this message was being shared by a pastor, stepping into the pulpit, calling his people to perfection, you think you're not going to get some pushback? I mean, are you serious? You really want perfection? Man, that, I'm looking for a version or evasion or a new preacher. Somebody can give me space. I mean, I'm human after all. Right? You can see how easy it would be to evade and how to look for a way out. And the modern treatment does a pretty good job of it. And the sad thing, I think it was C.S. Lewis that that coined the phrase chronological snobbery. That's what we tend to do. Say, well, whatever is the most modern treatment must be the best treatment. Because we think we're the most modern. We think we must be the, the brightest and the best. But you see those couple of treatments of this this sermon, and I hope you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable to the text, yes, and those sort of commands, yes, but I'm not comfortable with evading it. There must be some other solution. There must be some other treatment. Okay, so we're going to move backward. Now let's move to the reformers. Martin Luther and John Calvin are two that I want to bring up. Martin Luther believed this sermon to be authoritative for all Christians. Okay, there's some pretty good shoulders we can stand on. But here's what's different about Martin Luther. Though authoritative, he thought the impossibly high demands of the sermon were meant to make all people aware of their sin and poverty before God and thereby turn to Christ in faith. I'm going to say that again because I want you to understand Martin Luther's point. Martin Luther believed the impossibly high demands of the sermon were meant to make all people aware of their sin and poverty before God and thereby turn to Christ in faith. And that makes a lot of sense familiar with the Galatians passage that says that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ? That's Martin Luther's handling of this sermon that we're going to be considering these next few months. And it actually there's a term that actually was labeled. As much as I appreciate Martin Luther, as much as I appreciate the reformers and all they did, I don't stand squarely on his shoulders because an impossible ideal actually quickly becomes an evasion. If it's impossibility to turn the other cheek... And it's just supposed to lead me to Christ? Man, I'm going to enjoy Christ, but yes, I'm not going to walk out obedience of what, in, in obedience what he's called me to. I think, too, that view, the impossible idea, presents a father that is difficult and unloving. If you look at the Ten Commandments and say, well, he just gave us the Ten Commandments just so we would appreciate how sinful we are and we would turn to Christ then it would be like a father giving you a chore list that you could never accomplish and wanting you to appreciate how graceful he is when he forgives the fact that you didn't accomplish any of the chores. I believe our Savior stood on this hillside this day, giving us some commands that are chores that are doable. And I'm going to deal with that here in a moment. Because I think we have a good Savior and a good father that's not working against himself like that. Calvin, on the other hand, believed the sermon to be fulfilled by Christians, not in the flesh, but by grace given through the Holy Spirit. Man, amen. Through dependence on God alone, we are weak, but God grants us what we need to obey him. I like those shoulders. I like Martin Luther's a lot, but I like John Calvin's better as he's dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. The medieval period, this guy I mentioned a moment ago that I was just going to give a little shout-out to. It's not an encouraging, thankful shout-out. It's just uh, recognizing what this guy believed. was Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. He said that not all of the Sermon on the Mount was applicable to every believer. That's a nice little evasion. And that some of the things that were so impossible that you had to just go off and join a monastery. Some of them were so impossible you just had to follow a monastic tradition in hopes of actually obeying them. That's a way of evading. It's not a way of reckoning with the whole sermon. And I'm moving backward to the patristic period. Patristic period is a fancy way of saying the period from the end of the New Testament to 451 A.D. Okay, the Council of Chalcedon was in 451 A.D. A couple of the names that I just want to consider are two guys. One, a preacher. One, uh, we'd say, a theologian. Uh, John Chrysostom is a preacher from Antioch. He wrote an exegesis on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the earliest exegesis that we have on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, And he urged people. Now, this is a pastor in 350-something A.D. Okay, These are shoulders I want to stand on as a pastor, and these are shoulders that I want us to stand on as a people. Here's what he said. He urged his people to seek to live by the Sermon on the Mount more and more every day. And here's the pastor's heart in the whole thing. He counseled them Sounds almost like a good father with a, a, a kid. He counseled them to begin with the easier teachings and to seek to progress to the more difficult ones as they grew in holiness. Isn't that good? Man, I like John Chrysostom. I like that approach. It's just a sweet encouragement. He said, let us not consider that these commandments are impossible for none of the things he has commanded are burdensome and odious. Augustine, also in the mid-4th century, he was the first to refer to this as the Sermon on the Mount. Augustine was, apparently, he considered the location, the context of him walking up a mountain and then walking down it or down at the end of it to be profoundly important. And you'll see, I think, next week as we consider this theologically why that's important. But he said of the sermon, it's the perfect measure of the Christian life, filled with all the precepts by which the Christian life is formed. He recognized believers would not fulfill the demands of the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, and hence the need for "forgive us of our debts." Now, the early church—we're going to back up to the earliest record that we have of treatment of the Sermon on the Mount. There's an early writing that's placed time-wise around 60 to 80 AD. Okay, it's a little writing. It's, a, get, it's like an early catechism called the Didache. We don't know who wrote the Didache, but it's a pastoral manual and it's a catechism. It's like the earliest Christian catechism that we have in existence. Around 60 to 80 AD, they deal with the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how they handle it. It opened with a discussion of two ways, the way of life and the way of death, as we've already considered in chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. And the section ends with the author advising, See that no one leads you astray from this way of the teaching, for such a person teaches you without regard for God. For if you are able to bear the whole yoke of the Lord, you'll be perfect. Sound like something I've already mentioned this morning. But if you are not able, then do what you can. Isn't that sweet? Sounds like John Chrysostom. You will be perfect, echoes chapter 5, verse 48. And the author of the Didache, listen, he viewed the Sermon on the Mount as a description of the true righteousness that characterizes the Christian ideal. And he offered, or this, this, the ideal Christian disciple, he offered that the inability to live up to the standards put forth in the sermon should inspire believers to do so more and more. Not to say, ah, well, it's an impossibility. Not to say, ah, I could never do that. Let me figure out how I can evade that. So the early church, and the, I think the square shoulders that I would hope to stand on this morning, the early church believed the disciple should do what he can to obey the sermon. He should strive to be perfect even as his Father is perfect in heaven. The early believers recognized fulfilling the sermon on the mount was difficult. Not a one of them said, eyes oh, is easy. But they denied it was an impossibility. For those who had experienced and were experiencing God's transforming grace. How are we going to treat this sermon over the next few weeks and months? We're going to treat it like the rest of the Bible, and I hope to hope and pray we're going to treat it like the early church did and like our patristic fathers did. We're going to treat it like it's authoritative, however it may disassemble us, however it may decreate us, however hard it may hear to consider to wrangle with, we're going to treat it like it's authoritative in our life. We're going to treat it like our king climbed to the top of a mountain and spoke about how citizens of the kingdom are to move, here and now, in a world that doesn't know him, in a world that needs some salt, in a world that needs some light. So if you're wondering how cross Crosspoint Fellowship is going to handle it, we're going to handle it like it reads. We're going to treat it like this is the product of being reborn from above. There's nothing in the sermon about how to become a Christian. The sermon itself is about how the Christian walks out what has already happened to him through faith and union with Christ. We'll treat it like this is the product of transformation, that instead of something that we have to muster or conjure, it's the supernatural work of God's grace in our heart, like wool is to the sheep. Okay. Now, we're, last, we're going to deal with setting. I'm going to spend a few minutes on setting because I think this is important. I want to, first of all, distinguish the difference between an encyclopedia and a dictionary. When I was growing up, I, um, we didn't have the internet. That may be a surprise to some of y'all, but we didn't have the internet. We didn't have a computer until I was in high school. We didn't. I mean, I only knew one person in our school that even owned a computer, and that's when I was a senior in high school. I mean, th- th- that stuff was just unheard of in home, so nobody had internet. Um, I remember asking my mom, like any young boy, hey, mom, can you, you know, what does this mean? What, what's going on here? You know, I'm trying to get some understanding about various things in life. And, and she would send me to the dictionary or to the encyclopedia. We had a big encyclopedia set, Encyclopedia Britannica. And I, those things, are, I don't know if anybody even owns those anymore because they take up so much library space. Um, but I, one, one of the things that I found as I read the dictionary and as I read the encyclopedia, where I gravitated was the encyclopedia because the dictionary just didn't tell me a whole lot. And you probably know the difference, and you've been in school enough or to know the difference. A dictionary is going to give you a static meaning, and in some ways, I've thought about a dictionary. It's, it's kind of like it's it's sanitary. Okay, it's almost like the definition. You know, you're is wearing green surgical clothes, and it has scalpel and forceps, and and, and there's no germs. Uh, it's removed from the dirty context of the world. And it stands alone. It's something that's sort of helpful, but it doesn't really paint the whole picture. And it doesn't acknowledge where our world is relative to that word. And I should say, where our context is relative to that word. Okay, I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was, um, was going to do an introduction to a sermon with a definition of the word love. And I can't even remember what sermon it was. I didn't use it as an introduction. But I studied the difference between the Webster's Dictionary definition of love... And the urban dictionary definition of love. Okay? I'm talking, you would not believe the difference. Okay? The, the Webster's dictionary is really tidy and, you know, like a couple lines, and yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's underdeveloped, but at least it makes sense. And then you read the urban dictionary, and it's really the, the, the definition that wins in the urban dictionary is the one that's most popular. So it gives you a window into the dirt and the grime of our context. How our world views that particular thing right now. How our context views that particular thing. A dictionary is sanitary. And the urban dictionary was just a little glimpse, I think, into the dirt and the grime. But I think that the other option, we don't have to go to the the, uh, urban dictionary to really see what I'm talking about. I think an encyclopedia does the better job of capturing dynamic understanding of the topic. The texture of the context. What led into that thing? What is around it? What's surrounding it? What's the dirt and the grime dealing with that particular topic? So what I want to do, and I, what I hope to do, maybe, maybe not only this morning, but maybe especially this morning, is deal with this in, in encyclopedic terms. Because the Sermon on the Mount, if we just parachute in and we deal with it like a dictionary, then it's sanitary, and it misses the dirt and the grime of our lives. And we could just walk away with these surgical thoughts that have nothing to do and no intersection with our lives. So I want to take a moment to just understand what was conditioning the lives of the people that gathered on that hillside that day 2,000 years ago that we need to consider. It might condition how we read it and how we handle it. Okay, so I actually built a little slide that I think will give uh, at least a visual. Um, I like visuals. They help me make sense of, of things. You go ahead and put that, put that first slide up. And I'll do a little bit of explanation and then I'll come back to it. Um, I like these timelines. I've, I've used these timelines a number of times over the years. Uh, if I could start back here, it would be creation be back here somewhere. Uh, the kind of high water marks for me are 20, 2500 AD is the call of Abraham. Okay, that's not on the money, it's an approximate 2500 AD, the call of Abraham back here somewhere. The Exodus, also not an exact year. Moses and the Exodus, about 1500, and I said AD, excuse me, BC. This is way back here, B.C. 2,500 B.C. is Abraham. About 1,500 B.C. is um, Moses and the Exodus. Okay? About 1,000 years before Christ is um, the call of David. Okay? Approximately 1,000 years. Okay? Those are high watermarks. And then the thing I want you to notice here, this is the first temple that was built by his son Solomon in 950 B.C. Okay? That first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians... I came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Okay? And then something happened after that that I'll mention later. And just for reference, to kind of acquaint you with this whole thing, there's the cross, there's Christ. This is our sermon. That's is a little mount, a little, tiny little mount there. Okay? Cool. A little tiny little wee mount. Okay? And there's the second temple destroyed. is right here in 70 A.D. And then here we are on the timeline because I want to remind you all that we're on this timeline. We're not talking about something outside of us. We're talking about something that happened before us. That involves us, okay? Now, this thing up here I'll explain in a moment. But this basically is going to be what conditioned the people on that hillside that day. And there are going to be two things that I'm going to introduce to you today. The first of those two things is Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar the next temple was built shortly thereafter and i'll explain some time frame there but i'm speaking about a time frame a time frame that went from 586 to 70 ad okay it would be the time frame between here and here okay it was called second temple judaism that's how i'm referring to it but the second temple is it's less about the structure because the second temple wasn't quite built until right here about 513 bc okay but it's a mindset it's a parking spot for a mindset of the Jewish mind during the Second, second Temple Judaism between this period, 586 B.C. to 70 A.D. Okay, some, uh, some important things that happened during this period. About 538 B.C., the Babylonian exiles were allowed to return home. Okay, So if you've read your Bible, you know some books that line up with that. That would be 538 B.C. Some books that line up with that would be Nehemiah. As he goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And then the other book would be Ezra. As he goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's right along in here about 538 B.C. Okay, and then 513 B.C. the second temple was rebuilt. Now here's what's important about what's going down there. Their restoration to the land after being in exile. Very much conditioned and influenced Jewish thought during this period. Okay, they had a, a, a concept of restoration because they had just been through it. And they were going through it. And they were hoping forward to something that was going to be a restoration to ultimately Eden. They're looking forward to something that's so profound that they felt like they were getting a shadow version of. They believed that God would eventually bring about the restoration of an Eden-like environment with ultimately humanity completely restored, redeemed, and in proper relationship with God and with one another experiencing a flourishing life and they had a word for it and it's the word shalom and it don't it doesn't just mean peace it means wholeness fullness completeness that's what they hoped in this people this second temple judaism Believe that shalom and peace and wholeness that was known with God at creation will come again as God restores shalom on the earth. So in preparation for that time, they studied especially two genres. Two genres of Old Testament. Okay, There was no New Testament at that point. And the two genres that they studied were wisdom literature and apocalyptic literature. That was their diet. Not exclusively, but especially. Wisdom literature deals with the, the warp and the woof of life. Okay, that phrase is a phrase that they use for fabric. We have some fabric running this way and some this way, and it's interwoven. The warp and the nitty and gritty of life. Wisdom is not a collection of ideas and thoughts. It's about how we walk out the messes that we're living in. Okay, and they held fast to this wisdom literature. And we, as a church, just considered Job recently. Job is part of that wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, those are the things that they dined on. These scriptures deal with real life and real human experience, not abstract ideas. Not these truths that are off sanitary stuff, but stuff with germs and dirt and grime. Real people stumbling through the world. And as a result, wisdom writings deal with these nitty-gritty details of how we live life in a way that will result in peace and happiness. They're wanting to usher in shalom. So they're very much thinking, what, how are we supposed to live? How are our lives, not just in, as a dead end, just making us happy, but how are they to usher in this age where God ultimately brings about worldwide shalom? I think it's very important that we consider that the wisdom writings deal with these nitty-gritty details of how we live And the whole goal there is that we understand how to usher in shalom. That's how these guys were thinking on that hillside 2,000 years ago. That mindset carried into that Sermon on the Mount context. And there were instructions as diverse in the wisdom writings, as diverse as how to deal with loss, right, Job. How to deal with relationship struggles, Job. How to deal with money, how to deal with a young woman as a young man, Song of Solomon. This this is real warp and woof kind of stuff. All of this found in the wisdom literature was, was stuff that they imported into that event on that Sermon on the Mount as they heard those words from our Lord. That was the dirt and the grime. Okay, Something else that they were considering was apocalyptic literature. If you know apocalyptic literature, you know at this point we're talking Old Testament. We're primarily talking the book of Daniel. And some passages in Ezekiel. okay, The stuff that's really psychedelic. That you're reading and going, wow, man, this is crazy. I don't even know what he's talking about. That stuff. They studied apocalyptic literature for a purpose. It may not sound like it would have anything to do with the Sermon on the Mount. But let me help you understand. Apocalyptic literature intersected with wisdom literature in looking forward to God's ultimate um, arrival and live a time where he would live with his people it's a a term that's called the eschaton the end of the age apocalyptic literature looked forward to this and it seems completely unrelated but it was essentially ethical okay here's why this is important the expectation of an eden restored and shalom meant one's present way of life can hardly continue as ever a great example would be noah and his family Shem, ham and japheth they're living one life, and then they get the news, ah, there's a flood coming, and this whole world is going to be recreated, and you know that's going to change their ethic. They're not going to be doing like the rest of the world is doing, is living and eating and drinking and living and giving in marriage. <laughs> they're going to be hammering, and they're going to be preaching, and the way they live and the things that are important to them and the way they move is going to be influenced by what they know is coming. So apocalyptic literature very much conditioned This early mind. So studying it made the ancient listener less tied to the present state of the world, and that plays out ethically. Some phrases in the Sermon on the Mount lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, and do not be anxious. Those sort of refrains you hear in the Sermon on the Mount. You hear wisdom literature and apocalyptic literature come together in John the Baptist's call that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The kingdom is here, so that's got to change and affect your ethic and how you move. The kingdom has come, so live accordingly. So you've got these wisdom teachings, and you've got these apocalyptic teachings, and both are going on in the context that this sermon was preached. The hillside would have been populated with men and women who wanted to know how to prepare for the coming kingdom of God. I want you all to hear this. I know this is dry today. I get it. It's academic. This is investment in future dining and i really want you to get this cuz i'm about to challenge you with a thought and this is really where it connects this hillside 2000 years ago would have been populated with men and women who wanted to prepare for the coming kingdom of god the eschaton and how to live accordingly and here's the challenge they would have wanted to know how a message from god was to intersect with real life the nitty-gritty details the warp and woof and my question for you today is that you Did you bring your nitty-gritty details in here with the expectation that what you're going to hear in these coming weeks in the Sermon on the Mount is going to intersect and influence and maybe transform and guide and direct how you move in that warp and woof? These guys that joined him on that hillside 2,000 years ago apparently did. That was conditioning the mind of the Second Temple Judaism. The encyclopedic understanding of the Sermon on the Mount recognizes that the Sermon on the Mount is a vision for virtue that's oriented to God's coming kingdom and is given to those who have ears to hear and build their lives wisely upon Jesus' teaching. And there's a term for that in the Sermon on the Mount, upon a rock. All right, the other thing that I wanted to build into this morning is the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. Go ahead and hit that next slide. These two things that factored into this hillside that day. Second Temple Judaism and Greco-Roman virtue tradition. Now, I know just in the title that some of you are like, man, all right, this, I, I'm gone. I'm out. I'm going to help you with this if I can. Okay? I want you to see how this even connects to where we are today. I mentioned Thomas Jefferson and his Epicureanism. Okay, let me kind of put this on the map for you. The language of the sermon shows evidence of a connection to Greek philosophy. Okay, that may be completely foreign for you. It was completely foreign for me. It shows evidence connection to Greek, ancient Greek philosophy. Let me put some people on the map for you here. Uh, Epimenides is the name I'm going to bring up in a moment. Epimenides is probably seven or 800 years before Christ. Right out here, he's a Cretan philosopher. Okay, some people that might be more familiar. Aristotle, 384 to 322. Let me be right in there somewhere. Okay. Socrates, 470 to 399. That's when they lived. Plato, 400 to 300 B.C. Epicurus, or Epicurus 341 to 270 B.C. We're getting closer to Christ's time frame. Pythagoras, that old crazy theorem guy, 569 B.C. Okay? All these guys and all their words and all their teachings are all affecting this hillside that day 2,000 years ago and affecting a large part of our New Testament, if not all of it. Here's one that I didn't realize was, was so contemporary, Epictetus, the guy that started Stoicism. His, his time frame was 55 to 135 A.D. 55 to 135 A.D. These guys, a lot of them predated Jesus, and they might be thinking, you might be thinking, well, their thoughts are over here, and then Jesus' thoughts are over here, and Jesus' words and messages are over here. But their thoughts and teachings have become so much a part of the ancient context, it is nearly impossible for us to appreciate. But here's a couple of windows. Here's just a couple of thoughts. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks at the Areopagus. The Areopagus is in stone's throw distance from the Agora, where these guys gathered and taught. And you might remember how that went down in Acts chapter 17, where he shows up and they they ask him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting the Areopagus was a place, apparently, where they're discussing these teaching and these ideas. And the Agora is right down the hill there at the Acropolis. Man, these are stomping grounds for these guys considering these sorts of things. And here's Paul right in the middle of it. The reason I mention this guy, Epimenides, from 6th or 7th century B.C. is because Paul quotes him. Paul quotes the guy in our Bible. And you might be familiar with the passage in, in, in Timothy or in Titus. He tells Titus, you know, as the Cretan, as the ancient or the Cretan philosopher has said, all Cretans are liars. That Epimenides uh, paradox. When a Cretan says all Cretans are liars, what's actually happening there? It just becomes this circular thing. It's fascinating. Paul quoted him. This guy that wrote most of our New Testament is apparently steeped in this context. And we give no airtime to it because it's a little bit dry. It doesn't make for good preaching. Sorry. But it matters because we're not going to be just good at lifting heavy things. We're going to consider, okay, what would these guys have to do with what we bring to the table in understanding the Sermon on the Mount? It had a lot to do with what they brought to the table. The notion of a really wise man climbing up to a high place and saying some really amazing things on a hillside was not a new thing that day when Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. It was already a context where lots of wise guys were doing that. And they were presenting this idea. They were selling something. And let me tell you what they're selling. They're not just getting up there pontificating on stuff. They're actually selling something. And the Greek word is eudaimonia. The the theme there for these ancient philosophers, what they're selling is human flourishing. Here's how you can find human flourishing. And people are showing up to hear it. Because who doesn't want to be happy, right? who don't want to flourish, who don't want to find wholeness and shalom. So 2,000 years ago, this second temple, Judaism, is showing up on this hillside. And 2,000 years ago, this Greek context is showing up on this hillside. You may have never thought about Jesus as a philosopher. We all know that Matthew presents him, God presents him, our word presents him. as so much more than some sage or philosopher. But let me tell you this, he's nothing less He's way more, but he's nothing less than a sage or a philosopher. This sermon, in fact, is laid out much like Greek, uh, Greco-Roman virtue philosophy. The stuff that we don't take the time to consider. Now, why does this matter? Here's why it's important. Because Greek philosophy started ultimately with a search for happiness. A search for happiness. They're not pontificating. They're selling something. And it's that Greek word, eudaimonia. And I think that's where Thomas Jefferson must have had it, where it must have come to mind for him as he weaves this into our Declaration of Independence, is this this pursuit of happiness. Because an Epicurean steeped in that. Who doesn't want to find that? They were selling human flourishing, an overall life that is satisfied and meaningful and whole and happy. And though the philosophers differed, Hedonism, Epicureanism, Stoicism, they all differed on how that was achieved. They all agreed the only hope for human flourishing was to pursue virtue. Was to pursue virtue, practiced and developed, and learned over time. So there's an integration of these two things into this hillside that day. Second Temple Judaism and Greco-Roman virtue tradition that, that conditioned this hillside. In the centuries leading up to Jesus' day, the Second Temple Judaism was deeply, deeply steeped in Hellenism. I mean, think about what is our New Testament language was it written in? It wasn't written in Aramaic. It wasn't written in Hebrew. It's written in Koine Greek. Man, I get it. I get it. I so love preaching. I love teaching, too. But this is a teaching investment so that you can consider some bigger contexts that will hopefully foster our preaching and fuel our preaching in the coming weeks. This hillside that day 2,000 years ago would have been populated with people carrying a quest for happiness. So if you come here maybe with a little hope for happiness to this day, you're in good company. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. A quest for happiness and wholeness in a virtuous life. These are the dirt and germs on the hillside that day. So I want to encourage you, carry the same dirt and germs, to the sermon in these coming weeks. You might have connected with some of the dirt and germs that we've considered this morning. I think the second one's easy to connect to, the, the quest for happiness, who doesn't want to be happy and whole? Okay? That's, I think it's a human desire, and that's why the Greek philosophers really scratched an itch there. But the Second Temple Judaism, we got a lot to learn from those guys, that they're anticipating the eschaton, they're anticipating when God is going to live and dwell with his people. And how should that condition how we move and live now? Man, I hope we bring that to this sermon. We need to work at bringing that to this. We need to make that matter. All right, let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word and thankful for this context that we can consider this morning. We're thankful that we have so much window into ancient context that we can in some ways join them on that hillside maybe even with their thoughts and their concerns and their fears and their anxieties and their dreams and their hopes lord i'm praying right now that we can bring these things to this hillside in the next weeks next in the coming weeks and months that we will first of all have a desire to prepare for christ's return and live accordingly and secondly lord that we will bring questions of happiness that you'll show us here what it means to be happy and how we can find true human flourishing, and trusting this big work to you in Christ's name, we pray, Amen. Our supper this morning is going to come from Isaiah chapter 50, fifty-two. It's a Isaiah fifty-three is probably a very familiar passage to most. Um, it's talking about the it's it's a prophetic passage about the suffering of our Lord. He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. And he esteemed esteemed as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Uh, He's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. A very familiar passage. What's right in front of that passage in chapter 52 is a passage that may be also familiar. You may have never connected it to this particular context that we're considering today in the Sermon on the Mount. But listen to this this passage in verse uh, 7 of chapter 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes Shalom. Who brings good news of happiness? Man. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, Your God reigns. One of the things that I enjoy about that passage is just enjoying the beautiful feet of our Lord as He stepped on this hill 2,000 years ago. And thankful that we get to enjoy Him these coming weeks and enjoy through this living message, this good Savior who publishes salvation who brings good news of happiness, and who publishes peace and shalom. Man, could anybody do with some peace and shalom? I think we're at the right place and we're on the right hillside right now. That's a good thing, and I'm thankful that our Lord accomplished that. One of the things, too, that I want to enjoy as we take the supper in these next few minutes is all the philosophers are dead. I mean, let's really just, we're not enjoying their particular death or anything like that, but we're noticing that they're dead and our Lord's not. Okay, so his message is a living message because he still lives. So what he said on that hillside that day stands in stark contrast to what Epimenides had to say or Socrates or any of those other guys. We can enjoy that this is a living message, it's a fine message, and it's a potent authoritative message from a living Lord who purchased um, our understanding, who purchased our access to this through his work on the cross. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy that together.